And you don't find too many Olympic lifting champions in international level who are built or shaped something like I am. Long extremities, short torso, it doesn't happen. And there's a reason for that. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Basketball Strong Podcast. I'm Tim DeFrancesco, former LA Lakers strength and conditioning coach and doctor of physical therapy, and I'm here with my co-host, Emmy-nominated writer and author, Phil White. This podcast is not just for basketball junkies. It's for anyone who loves to hear the human stories behind great people while learning the science behind preparing your body for the court and high performance. Today's guest is Lee Boyce. Lee is a trainer and strength coach. He's a professor, and now he's an author. He recently co-authored alongside Melody Schoenfeld the new book, Strength Training for All Body Types, The Science of Lifting and Levers. This conversation was phenomenal because we got into the nuances of training and working out, getting strong and staying strong for taller athletes. As Lee shares and explains in great detail, it's not one size fits all. Again, the title of the book is Strength Training for All Body Types. So tall, short, somewhere in the middle, this book has something in it for you on how to specifically customize and get the most out of resistance training, strength training for your personal body type. If you're going to do all that work in the weight room, getting stronger and, and getting in there and getting all the reps in, you may as well do it the best way possible and the most precise way for your body type. This book has the answers. You'll definitely love it. Get your hands on it. You can order on Amazon. Learn more at www.leeboyce.com and follow on Instagram and Twitter at Coach Lee Boyce. Let's get into the conversation. Lee, way before you co-authored your book, Strength Training for All Body Types, The Science of Lifting and Levers, uh, you were posting Tall Guy Tuesdays. You were putting amazing content in Men's Health, other publications that I was snagging and grabbing information from you as and applying it even in my times while working with basketball players at all levels, including my time in, with the Lakers. And we even met and grabbed a, a coffee and a croissant in Toronto, one uh, road trip that the, the Lakers had in passing in Toronto. And um all that was going on though. And, and you were sort of, I could tell you were really geared into helping solve some of the issues that arise with longer levers, lifting, resistance training, bigger, taller, longer people can run into things that others of us that are not in that category don't realize what was, I'm just curious, what was the thing that brought you into that and, and steered you in that direction. And then, and then really just, uh, where, where you made, uh, where you made your hay. Well, the first thing for sure is the fact that of course, being myself, I'm a tall guy. So, uh, at six foot four, the, the general issues that I might've found with certain uh, exercises and making them work well for me, um, that would have been the first thing that comes to mind to answer your question. Uh, second of all, I'd have to refer to my knee injury back in 2017 and how much that really adjusted and uh, changed things with regards to my programming, the things that I would do, how I would train, um, what kinds of things would be made more user-friendly for lack of a better term. Um, it was a real eye opener, huge game changer in terms of uh, what uh, what choices were made in the gym. And I, it, I'm glad that I had that setback because it taught me a lot in terms of not only dealing with uh, my own stuff, but also dealing with clients and what kinds of things to uh, expect 
of them programming wise and so on. So, um, you know, you, you try to make lemonade out of the lemons sometimes. Right. Right. So go, so go into that a little bit more detail. First and foremost, growing up, when did you realize, Hey, I'm, I'm getting up in, in height here. I'm a bigger person. And I, I like working out. Like when did that hit you? And, and really you realize I've, I've got to, uh, sort of solve for this for myself and, and then also then learn more about it and get into the field. Well, you know, uh, now that I actually think back about it, because no one's really asked me that question before, but now that I really think back about it, I probably realized the difference in terms of, um, you know, my height, my lever lengths and uh, my adding size and things like that when I was probably in high school or university. And now mm. the, the dots weren't connecting in any way, shape or form in terms of, OK, I want to talk about this content. I want to study this content or anything like that. Not even close. But in high school and university, I ran track, among other sports in high school, but I ran track. And um, while I was running, the one thing that I was very intent on was looking like a sprinter more so than anything else. I loved the sprinter's body, you know, the heavier build compared to the other track athletes. They had these, you know, shorter compact bodies as well. And I wanted to know why at six foot two, six foot three at the time that I was, why I couldn't get that look as well. Mm. You know? realized that because I was taller, I was a little bit longer. I had these longer arms and legs compared to your average 100 or even 200 meter sprinter. Um, it just, it wasn't quite the typical body type for, you know, the elite competitors of that sport. And uh, for that reason, it was hard for me to attain a certain look and going further onto this, because this uh, subject sort of follows to it too, is that when I would run, especially if I saw any footage of myself running, sprinting, running the 200 as fast as I can, 100 meter as fast as I can, I'm beside the other athletes. I might have even won the race, but I look like I'm moving in slow motion, right? Wow. The reason why is because my stride rate wasn't the same speed as everyone else's. They had a faster frequency because they were shorter with shorter levers, right? And for me, I'm taking longer strides. I'm traveling faster than they are, but I'm covering more ground per stride. And so that turnover looks a lot slower. And so from that, that just bothered me. I don't know why, but it just, right. some people love it for me. It didn't, I didn't like that. I wanted to see with my feet going like a blur, but it never came that way. Right. And so um, anyway, that's when I was more aware of, okay, there's differences in terms of like my height in terms of adding mass differences in terms of my height, in terms of what that looks like in high exertion situations and explosive situations and so on. And so I was just a little more aware of it by that point. Now, fast forward into, okay, so I'm 20 years old, still running track, still in school, but at the same time now I'm starting personal training with clients as well. And, you know, years go by. And then by the time I'm probably in my late 20s or so, I started noticing, okay, you know what? I should start thinking about how things really work in the gym for tall guys. This mm. is a time that I met you actually. And we did have conversations. It was perfect because you were in the basketball world. You were with pro athletes in the basketball world, six, eight, seven feet and so yeah. on. You know, we're talking about the trap bar deadlifts rather than a barbell deadlift. We're talking about big ranges of motion, talking about loading and volume and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, everything was starting to click for sure. And that time was before I even had an Instagram account or anything like that. So the tall guy Tuesday stuff that really spawned back in 2018 and uh, or 2019, maybe. And it went on until until this current day. And I have one coming out tomorrow. <laughs> you mentioned something that uh, it was also part of the the cement of the foundation, I think, for what the book is and what you do now so expertly, which is the injuries and the knee injury. And that was not a little nick or a bruise. Uh, can you get into that? 
Yeah, so the, the injury was a bilateral patellar tendon rupture. And so that basically means is that on both of my knees, um, I completely broke my patellar tendons, the, the tendon attachment um, that keeps your kneecap in place on both sides. And so that happened during a basketball game that I was uh, I was going up for an alley-oop and uh, decided that I didn't want to do that. Um, and at that point, uh, I went down and it was a question of, okay, I thought that I dislocated my knees, but it's like, no, I'm having real trouble moving anything below the waist here. And uh, then it was like, yeah, no, uh, you got to call 911. We got to bring this to uh, to an emergency room situation. And so uh, oh. injury, that was the nature of the injury and uh, the rehab and everything that followed that, you know, being in the wheelchair, not having a good leg to stand on, having to do the rehab and all that stuff over the course of months uh, to the point where I'm rechecking certain things after like a year's time and so on. It was quite the process. And again, it taught me a lot, again, to try to make the lemonade out of the lemons. It was very tough, but it's also a good realization to say that, you know, <clears throat> there are certain things that you can't really expect to continue doing at the same level throughout your entire life. And that's not a strike against your abilities or your efforts. It's just the reality of the situation. Like it's like a car. Yeah. If, if you take great care of it, it still might have 500,000 kilometers on it. And there's something to be said about that versus a brand new machine. So we got to keep aware of like the wear and tear that we're placing on our bodies wear and tear that we're putting on our joints and so on and manage things appropriately so that we can still train hard, train well, train consistently and not get hurt all the time or not be just a, a bundle of chronic pain day in and day out. And, um, you know, the point at which I am like, people will see my, my social media posts and whatnot. I'm always got, I've always got training stuff on there, my self training and so on. And people will look at my social media posts and uh, luckily and gladly, Many of them, if they're new to my stuff, they have no idea that I ever got hurt at all because of the right. far along I've come for regards to rehab and so on. I really, really have to say I did a, quite a good job in getting back to very close to, you know, what I used to be. Now, with that said, you know, even just this past summer in 2022, I met a client because um, I get a lot of messages and stuff where people will say, um, you know, I have your injury. Somebody uh, was uh, playing basketball or playing soccer, or whatever. They ruptured their left knee. Uh, somebody was playing, uh, you know, they're running and then they ruptured that kind of stuff. And so I'm getting a lot of messages about that on a consistent basis. And it's surprising how common a rupture is, actually. And so they asked me for advice, they asked me for feedback, they asked me for help and so on. And you know, as happy as I am to help, one time there was a guy and he contacted me saying, I live in Toronto as well. I was wondering if I could uh, uh, meet you and talk to you and uh, train with you for a couple of sessions because I had this rupture that happened and I'm a year out. I've had surgery and it's a year later. So, okay, sure. And so he meets me and uh, this is on his right knee or his left knee actually and uh, just one of his legs. And he meets me and the guy is, is still seriously limping. He still has significant atrophy in his left leg. Um, he's still... Wow you know, do anything without support to get into a half kneeling or a lunging position and all that stuff. Like, and we're talking about a strong guy, an athletic guy, basically the same, you know, physical appearance as a guy like myself, as far as just like able-bodied, a guy who's really been in the gym and all that stuff. He used to be squatting heavy and used to be deadlifting and all those sort of things, perfectly fine. And, um, you know, played ball and that's how it happened for him. He got hurt and the rehab got him to this point. So the measures that somebody takes after the fact are huge in terms of how far along they can get with getting back to normal, getting close to normal. Um, and 
that was really eye-opening for me when I saw that and was like, okay, this person had half of my injury, but after a year I was doing hill sprints and this right. guy really walked properly. Right. And you know, it just, it made me realize just how important that process of rehab is, how diligently you do things, what things are you going to choose in your rehab that will actually send you properly along your way? Is it just about tracking how much weight you can lift in those same big movements or is it different stuff altogether? Right. And, uh, yeah. What, what is your emphasis on flexibility work? Are you doing things for soft tissue? Are you focusing on mobility drills? How are you with handling body weight? There's a million other questions. What does the need do with respond with regards to things like its influence on dorsiflexion? What's its influence on things like hip flexion? All those kinds of things are going to play a factor too. There's a, how those things are going to affect the knee joint. So, you know, it, it does benefit a person who's gotten this injury to have like, you know, an expert kind of like source available yeah. to them. Luckily I'm a trainer. So I was able to sort of redirect a lot of my own path, which is good. And the knowledge I've got, but uh, a lot of people, if they're just stuck listening to maybe simply what the surgeon says, or simply what one MD says or something like that, they might need a little bit more industry specific experience uh, with this for the input. And uh, it can take them a lot further along with their recovery. I love, I love what you said. And I would just tag on something. Part of what I think played your, played a role in your ability to just be light years ahead of the individual that you referred to, like you said, had half the amount of injury basically, um, was the fact that you've been for years doing the right stuff going into it. So to do the right stuff going into it does not necessarily always mean there are certain injuries that are out of our control, non-contact based injuries that many we can uh, impact and create durability around, but sometimes we can't. And so uh, when they happen though, a great indicator um, and sign that somebody has been doing their homework ahead of time and doing it the right way and diligent with it, is and and also a big reason why it's so important as an athlete, especially somebody who's competing in force-based explosive type um, activities where injuries just can happen. So important to take do your do your work early ahead of time is when that injury strikes, the bounce back can be so much more rapid. It could be so much more um, powerful and 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 just fruitful. Um, where where somebody that really was kind of mailing it in and just doing their sport and, and loving their sport, but not really taking care of business in the weight room and that kind of thing. Um, the, the back end of that rehab can get really tough. So that, that front end work that you do, uh, in preparation for performance is also playing a big role in your durability, but also playing a huge role in your ability to bounce back when that injury may strike. Very true. Very true. Um, and that takes me into the next part of uh, where I really want you to dive in um, and and help us to understand how, through your lens, you start to look at training for taller, longer lever individuals in, obviously, my world of how much I've done and, and do with basketball athletes. That tends to be the norm, but it if you're not playing basketball and going to a weight room that has a strength coach there, sometimes there's taller individuals that really don't get a lot of good um, instruction and, and really understand why, why does my squat look different? For instance, can you start with the squat and, and just talk about that from a tall person's perspective, like what we're dealing with, why that might feel and look different? Yeah. So everything that we do, whether it is the squat, uh, the deadlift, any barbell vertical oriented movement, squat, deadlift, overhead press, 
Um, those kinds of movements are going to require that we respect physics and the laws of the universe the most. We want that that implement to travel in a straight line or something very close to it. We want it to stay within our footprint as far as where that load is so that our center of mass is correct and so that we don't injure ourselves. Now, with that being said, when we apply that to the squat and somebody who has, you know, maybe a very long pair of legs and they're over six feet tall and so on, um, oftentimes, especially if they are over six feet and they're all legs, you know, oftentimes they're going to end up hitching way forward when they squat down mm. to that bar in the right place in space, right? And so the bar will still be respected because no matter what we do, unless unless we're falling down or unless we fall backwards or something like that, that bar is going to do, it's going to conform to staying over our footprint. That's the thing. And what our body does underneath that bar is a totally independent thing. It has nothing to do with it, right? Because in order for that bar to not go down to the floor and fall off of us, it's going to have to stay in that spot. So with that being said, now it's a question of, okay, the body that's underneath the bar and of course the mobility and the capabilities proportionally of that body. So for a tall person who's got a long way to go up and down to achieve a nice full range ATG squat, just for the sake of of argument here, um, to go all the way down to the bottom of a full range ATG squat. It's going ATG to find that. So ask the grass, which means Thank you. you're getting all the way down to the floor, yep. but covering your calves, right? And so when you want that ATG kind of squat, it's going to look different than what it looks like when a five foot six guy does it. And the reason why is because if you've got really long femurs, well, it's going to mean that there's going to have to be a displacement one way for the knees to travel forward in order to accommodate the hips falling back enough in order to accommodate that bar still remaining vertically over the feet. Mm. And so that means that the whole knees over toes thing, the the debacle that people say on the internet that it should never happen, that's got to happen. That rule's got to be broken right away. Right. You need superior ankle mobility in order to get the same range of motion. And it does mean that you still, and this, all this is going to promote a congruency or a shin angle that is similar or very close to what your torso's angle is. And that's how you're going to look when you're at the bottom of that back squat. And so this is easier said than done for a lot of lifters who are 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six, those kinds of heights. Because most times we've avoided certain positions for so long that now we don't even have that mobility in the first place, even to do it without anything in our backs. And so from that perspective, it says, okay, well, what movements are going to, what movements that don't involve squatting can help me with that? And if we are talking about squats, are there different variations that might help me better get my range of motion back or better get a better feeling on my lower back so I'm not just jacking it up all the time? These are the questions that need to be asked when we're talking about working with taller lifters or lifters who don't have a favorable body type for a certain movement. And the truth of the matter is, if you look at the best squatters or Olympic lifters are a fantastic example of great squatters because they have to catch those front squat cleans. They have to catch an overhead squat for the snatch and so on. And they have to squat all the time in practice, too. They often at the elite levels have longer torsos and shorter legs by relative like in relative sense. Mm. They're better built for this kind of movement and they're capable of lifting a lot of weight for a lot of volume, for a lot of repetitions, whatever it is, because of that body type. And you don't find too many Olympic lifting champions and in international level who are built or shaped something like I am. Long extremities, short torso, it doesn't happen. And there's a reason for that. Right. And 
through every other sport that's competitive, if you get to the elite levels, you're going to see the same kind of homogeneous mixture of body types at that elite level where, you know, if you're looking at a person who plays running back on a football team, if you're looking at a person who's a Olympic level swimmer in the 50 meter freestyle, if you're looking at somebody who's a 100 meter sprinter on the track, if you're looking at somebody who's a, a high jumper, all these different things, you're going to start seeing very close similarities body to body with all those people at the highest level. And so it's, it's, it transcends just being athletic or strong. There's more to it that's at play. If we take that into consideration for weight training, squat pattern, or let's say a deadlift pattern, or let's say a bench press pattern, and other lifts like that, can we not ask the same questions? Is there a body type that's going to make me really excel at this lift compared to other body types? The answer is yes. No, that's so good. Can you give while we're on the squat and then a, a little, I'm going to just tease it to, I'm really interested in kind of how you look at training, um, core specific exercises for taller individuals, but, um, from the squat standpoint, what are, and obviously no one size fits all, um, the, what are a few that, uh, stand out if we started with a barbell back squat as the one that we say, okay, everybody line up and try this and taller individuals often struggle with that exercise. Uh, and you're as a, as a exercise prescriber, trainer, coach, you're going to then root that out and troubleshoot that with the individual. What are a couple of examples, uh, from a squat standpoint, if you could describe the variations, um, that you might sort of flow through and, and try, or that you found in your experience can be really helpful for the taller individual to play around with from a squat standpoint. So one kind of underrated version of a squat pattern that a lot of people don't use too often is actually something that can help in two different reasons. First reason is because a lot of the taller lifters, they might even have the mobility, but they don't have the strength and deep knee flexion to get out of the hole. And then mm. they can, their hips come up way faster. And then they're in the same situation with that good morning looking squat. And so that's really a matter of quad strength. It truthfully is a major issue that a lot of times we say, oh, the quads are dominant. You're quad dominant. And this throwaway line that I hear all the time, oh, your quads are too right. strong. Well, there's four quads. There's three hamstrings. Of course, they're going to be stronger. Anyway, so the quads could be weak as well, right? Mm -hmm. And if we really want to make somebody stronger all the way through when it comes to lower body strength and health and mobility and all that stuff, maybe we need to spend some time focusing on strengthening those quads. Rectus femoris is one of your hip flexors and it's a quad muscle. It does both jobs. And so from that perspective, if we want to get the quadriceps stronger and want to get the hips better health, maybe it means getting those quads stronger too, those hips stronger too. So with that being said, one exercise that I think is really good for that is the heels elevated dumbbell squat. And this is different than just keep keeping plates underneath your heels. So that's the only part of your foot that's elevated. You're completely on a slant board. So you're on a totally uh, on a different, on a grade completely on the on ground. Now, what this is going to do is because your foot's on a slant, now you don't have to worry as much about dorsiflexion, but it gives mm -hmm. you the opportunity to be in a deficit of dorsiflexion so that your shin can travel further forward with your torso still remaining upright. And so from that, your knees can travel way further forward, which will get you into much deeper knee flexion, which means your quads will have a lot more work to do on every single rep. And it's a great way for people who might have mobility restrictions or who might have weaknesses to have a chance to actually zero in on the quadriceps through a squat pattern. Oftentimes that doesn't get hit well enough because a lot of different uh, exercises, they'll shy away from that deep range of motion. So this way they can get their hamstrings to cover their calves with load. Maybe they have the weight on their hands, in their hands with dumbbells, or maybe they have a front squat uh, sort of a variation like that, or even a bar on their back. It could be anything. 
Um, but all those different variations of the heels elevated squat are going to be a great way if you can possibly do it with a slant board, especially. Not Got it. It's the heels up, but getting the full foot on the same level of a, of a, of a grade so that it's not just like your heels are elevated. And that could be a huge one. Uh, I think that's a great one. And um, the second one that I would have to Re- say- Real quickly, so I, I can't wait for the second one. So just so I process it all and, and um, listeners can understand it, what you're saying there, the slant board allows you to eliminate the from the equation um, if it is a blocker to the action and the range of motion. The it takes out the ankle mobility or lack thereof issue that many of those taller individuals are faced with because they have to overcome the length of the femur and everything else that travels there, and so you get much greater exposure to the full ranges of motion. Therefore, that slant board position, you're loading those quads much more full ranges of motion has them has them work on those quads throughout that versus just a flat footed squat. You're working those quads and then you can start to apply that later on to other squat positions and patterns. Is that, is that where where we're getting at? Yeah, that's right. And also like the important thing to remember is that people might think that it's a great way to build ankle mobility. It's not. Okay. So we have to make sure that we, that's right. Is that this is something that, creates an imposter of mobile ankles because the fact your heels are so much higher than your toes are. It's not the real thing. And that's why when you go back to heels flat on the floor, you're probably going to run into some of the similar problems. However, if you really want to use a squat pattern that does bias your quads in a great way, that kind of is irrelevant to mobility issues or restrictions of the ankle joint, that's your, that's your golden ticket. Yeah. It's a cheat code. Yeah, exactly. You know, so the second one uh, that I'd have to say, it would probably just be the plain old front squat. Now, this is definitely determined by somebody's upper body flexibility, but there are still ways around that as well. You know, if you can't hold the front squat with a nice clean grip, something like that, then you could go to that California style. But oftentimes I'll recommend that people use straps and where they're going to put straps on the barbell so that they don't have to worry about having quite the same mobility levels. And they can hold on to those straps so that they can do their front loaded squats. It enables you to usually lift a little bit more in terms of loading compared to a goblet squat, which is a great alternative too. But sometimes people get to a certain point where they've run the rack of dumbbells with a goblet squat and they can't find anything heavier than maybe 90 or 100 pounds. And that's a lot of work for them to hold up with their upper body. But if yeah. they hit a plate on the front squat, for example, well, they can do that. They use the straps or they use the actual barbell with their hands on it. They've got that mobility. So the front squat's another great one. And uh, it usually promotes a deeper depth because you're counterbalancing against that front load. And so you can now keep your spine more vertical, not hurt your back quite as easily. And you get to work that dorsiflexion. That's a huge one. So now you get the chance to work that dorsiflexion. And I can guarantee to most people who are over six feet tall, who are struggling with squat range of motion and squat comfortability, that the dorsiflexion and their ankle mobility is probably one of their biggest stopping points to why they can't get down nice and low and have a good, strong, good quality and feeling balanced. Mm. Their squat and, and so, dorsiflexion meaning toes towards your chin action. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Being able to have that shin travel forward, have the toe travel sh- uh, toward the shin, and uh, getting the knees over the toes as well—all that stuff that equates yeah. to good ankle mobility, good dorsiflexion. Awesome. It's oh, really interesting. Um, just to touch on, or maybe introduce something you said a minute ago, TD, um, we had an episode last spring around the playoffs where we touched on the fact that everyone from Dame Lillard to LeBron James has missed time with ab injuries and TD, you throw out a a potential reason for that. So maybe if you want to tee that up and then throw it over to Lee to 
to see what, what he thinks the reasons are. And again, not to throw anything against those guys or their coaches or trainers um, or say they're doing anything wrong, but it does seem to be a trend in the NBA and we're continuing this season to see guys missing time. So TD, do you want to probe that a little bit and then throw it over to Lee for his take? Yeah. So, so Lee, I can't wait to hear kind of your, your take on this and, and what you can uncover for us. But with my experience around a lot of basketball athletes, you do have this longer spine, longer lever, your, your core muscles as the, we, we all sort of, I think now know that the core is much more than your six pack, but the muscles of your trunk, um, they have to really do a lot more and protect a big longer lever of spine and pelvis and everything coming off of that far more than a five foot two gymnast. And so what I, do tend to find in those basketball athletes and in uh, in we see it now more and more lebron dame lillard and you see these sports hernias you see these abdominal strains and injuries um i do worry that there's maybe an over emphasis on big long lever planks and core exercises on physio balls that they are being shown or created from people that are five foot seven or five foot nine. And they work great for that person. And we put a seven foot one or a even six foot eight person in that position. There's a lot more going on, on very similar soft tissue um, that is abdominal trunk muscle drivers and and controllers that can create a lot more strain than good in some cases and tip the scales what's your take and how do you tackle the the person that is taller but says hey i need to i really want to put some emphasis on my core training we have to i mean you said half of it there because when you have longer levers when you have such a long huge momentum for example when you're doing whatever it is, an ab wheel rollout. That's a good example, right? Great exercise. But the thing is, is that somebody who's six foot eight, you know, unless they're very slight as far as their, their, their body mass is concerned, there's a low percentage chance that too many people in that kind of size category are going to be able to ever do that exercise from the toes and roll all the way out and back in without eventually jacking up their spine or getting acutely injured or something along those yep. lines. They strain something, you know, and the simple reason why is because we have so much distance be- between the actual effort or the place of effort. You know, we have a gigantic lever system that we're working with. And so similarly, like if you're doing like a leg raise, for example, we have a core that's the same size as somebody who might be five foot eight, let's say. Maybe it takes up or occupies the same amount of space. But then you have really long arms and maybe a load in those arms as well, or really long and heavy legs as well that are muscular and dense. And so that we have to remember that that in and of itself, just the body weight versions might be enough load and force for that core to have to handle. It's very different than having somebody who's much shorter, much shorter legs and so on, go through a hanging leg raise or go through a, a lying down leg raise or something along those lines. Or a uh, the Rocky exercise there the uh, what's it called again the Dragon Flag right so right like, all those kinds of Bruce movements. Lee yeah it's so yeah Bruce Lee sorry and, uh, those movements are so so difficult for well anyone really but even more so for somebody who is just larger heavier longer all of that stuff and just for clarity right the book that we're talking about here Strength Training for All Body Types Science of Lifting and Levers like that part there the science of lifting and levers 
that doesn't just talk about taller lifters. We're talking about people who are very small. We're talking about people who are, there's a section for big all over. And that mm. means, what about that defensive end on the football team who's 320 and they're six foot five and so on, those kinds of sizes. You know, it, it, what happens if you're, what happens if you're not conditioned, but you're just big, you got a lot of body fat to you and you can't fit in certain positions and certain different exercises and machines. And what can we do then? What happens if your biceps are blocking you from being able to get that proper clean grip on the catch or for a front squat? These are kind of problems that we troubleshoot and try to solve in this book as well. And so uh, on that note, we're talking about somebody who's very heavy or somebody who's very big and dense and all that stuff doing core training. Yeah, we've got to make special considerations for those things, too. And it might be it might mean just simplifying going down into, OK, if you don't want to do an ab wheel rollout, like my first example was, yeah. if you can't do that from the toes. But you want to do, let's say, uh, something that works that anti-extension component of the core. Um, let's change it to a hand walkout. So with the hand walkout, you mm. get those, you plant the hands on the floor and you walk out to and past your push-up position and you hold that long lever plank. You can now customize how far you go. You can use even a matter of inches with the hands to just determine how far. And it's much slower in tempo too. So you can just hold position and then walk it back in. Much more safe for one and much more efficient for a lot of people compared to using a wheel that can get away from you. So that's a really, really good one. Um, talking about core training as well, if you start thinking about things like the hang leg race, going into different versions, like instead of being in a full hang, being on an inclined bench instead, for example. So you're using almost your body weight, but not quite all of it because you're on that slant and then doing the leg raise from that position. Great alternative to it for a heavier lifter, for a longer lifter. It's a great opportunity for people to still get all the benefits of it, but just customize to their body type. No, I, I love that. And I think what I often find is that there's a tendency to, if you're DIYing your own workouts, or if you are prescribing the sort of middle zone of your end users, uh, if you're a trainer or a coach, strength coach, um, you, the middle zone of your end users are in that standard height zone. But then there's these outliers, as you said, that doesn't just have to be the taller side. It can be the smaller individual and more um, compact individual, but being able to um, sort of turn the dial to their language, their body, and, and, and be able to kind of meet them where they're at. And also just giving them more, what I call baking time on, on an exercise. So start to think about, okay, what's the what is the end game of this? Is this person even appropriate to go to a full on side plank with feet elevated? Because if we are talking about a six foot eight, seven foot person, that's a lot of stress and strain on the shoulder, on the pelvis, on different areas, on even the lateral aspect of the knee. If you were to picture somebody in a side plank with their feet elevated and we see those types of exercises out there. But if you really stop and pause for a second, the person demonstrating it is not usually seven feet. And so what are we doing to kind of let the baking time be appropriate? Because it's not that that person couldn't get to that because there's great movers. There are great movers. I want to also highlight that there's, there are great movers, actually Bobby Sacre, Robert Sacre, who wrote the forward to your book was a great mover for a seven footer. And um, he could do stuff that, six foot four players that I had just really struggled with. Um, but 
it's not that that person can't do it. Even if I get Bobby Sacre in front of me and is like, I do an assessment like, wow, he's really good mover. Let's just hit him really on that advanced side plank exercise. And I think this happens sometimes with, especially at the uh, pro level as well as a pro athlete, like let's get him to the advanced version of things. Yeah. But those tissues still need the baking time to get to the end stage that you're trying to get to. And you really have to take into account that with what you're saying, the physics behind the person of where you're going. And, and maybe they do, maybe they don't need to get to that end stage version. What are the modified versions that this person could um, benefit from still same muscle uh, areas challenge? And then how long do they need for the baking time? And where do we really need to get to, to achieve the objective? Because what's the objective? You said it earlier to me, the objective is you want to be able to do your thing, whether it is just, Hey, I want to be able to weight lift regularly three times a week, or I want to go play pickup basketball, or I play pro basketball or gymnastics or anything else. I want to do my thing longer. I want to have the durability for it. So if that's your lens, if that's your filter, then you start to think like Lee does like you do Lee and, and start to say like, let's train harder and smarter. Yeah. You know, and uh, whereas you come from a background, for example, where you're working with professional athletes, you're working with basketball players who are playing for an NBA championship. The more the grand majority of clients that I'm working with is average Joe's Bob from accounting, Deborah from finance, the person with three kids at home who just they work their nine to five or their eight to six. And then they have, you know, responsibilities and stuff like that at home that are very different. And that kind of client, whereas your, uh, your basketball guys, for example, might be all about performance, staying healthy to, to, to play at the top of their game. For me, it's two things. Look good, feel good. That's mm. it. Mm. It's what people want. And that's, this might be something that trainers disagree with or what that's what they want. Mm. Look good, feel good. There's not a on the planet of an everyday guy in the everyday classification. Who's not going to say that's included. It's their goals. Right. And if they can get that and do that while being injury free, that's right. like by far the uh, the pinnacle for them. So it's about finding the things that are going to work best for them so that they continue training for the long haul where they don't have to stop or have the sidelines or anything like that. And it's very important that we choose those things correctly. And uh, it's got to be very individualized, of course, because, you know, height and weight and body size and composition, all those different things. That doesn't d- decide to only make itself manifest when you're dealing with an athlete versus not an athlete. No, it's, there's the accountant who's six foot six and who's got, you know, really long legs and so on. Well, what are we doing with them? There's a person who's just, uh, you know, a, a everyday recreational soccer player who's got, you know, very long arms and shorter legs and so on. Well, how do we train them according to what their body type is? And that's the question that we got to ask. It's usually an element that we don't consider too much. We think cookie cutter is the way to go. We think that a, a set program that works really well is going to work well for everybody. What happens if you put a guy 280 pounds who's in shape through a Tabata workout next to a person who's 500, uh, sorry, who's five foot seven, who's 160 pounds and in shape, right? Well, the guy who's a bigger person is going to run out of steam much faster if they only get 10 seconds of rest between their sets. Right. So we just got to think about this from more of a perspective of, okay, what does it take to run this person's body? What kind of leverages are we dealing with? How long does each set take because of how much greater force times distance they're applying compared to the next person? Mm. In when we accommodate things like volume, weight lifted, cumulatively, how often we're doing this thing, you know, 
if you think about somebody who's deadlifting conventional for sets of, I don't know, eight repetitions, and they're doing above their body weight, well, if they're a taller lifter, they're going to have to hinge over a lot further than somebody who's much, much shorter and who might even have longer arms too. And so if we think about that, how much more lower, and they could be doing it with perfect form, by the way, how much more lower back cumulative loading of their spine do they have to deal with by comparison to somebody who's well-built for the lift, right? And these are the things. So you can see somebody do it well, could be okay, they could be feeling good, but all of a sudden after a year of training this way, they start complaining of chronic pain, they start having issues and so on, and be like, but your form is perfect. You've been doing everything that I said. Well, yeah, because you're tailoring their deadlift programming to that of a short person, right? And so wow. that got to start making, having those conversations as to what we're going to do to individualize our workouts for taller lifters, shorter lifters, lifters with smaller hands, lifters with shorter or longer arms, all of these different things, lifters with longer femurs and so on, notwithstanding injuries that they might have in their history surgeries they might have had in their history and all kinds of other stuff like that. Uh, what the lifter's real age is, what the lifter's training age is. All of this is in chapter one of this book. A lifter's real age, they come into the gym, they're 52 years old, they want to train and get stronger and train hard and they want to learn, get, get stronger and strength training. Compare that to a lifter who's 19 years old saying the same things. Are you going to approach them the same way? You shouldn't, right? Lifter's training age, let's say that that 27 year old and they've been training since they were 16 that's 11 for training age 52 year old but they've only been training since they were 50 that's a two-year-old training age again different approaches here right and these are these are just the less spoken of subjects that a this book covers but b that uh, every trainer should really be prudent to think about and it's going to help them a lot when they're doing their assessments when they're working with clients for the long term and so on so true i love that um, in addition to to taking the, this kind of context in into account, Lee, um, one of the the quotes slash endorsements on your web website was from our good friend Dan John, who we're going to hopefully have on the show fairly soon. And uh, if anyone doesn't know Dan, they should check him out. Um, he has a a three stage simplified approach to uh, to lifting, which is pick up weights, put weight overhead, carry weights, which is a pretty good place to start and kind of fits in with some of the, the classic exercises and the variations we talked about. But um, something Dan said about you that made me laugh, but I thought we could unpack a little bit was um, talking about your brutal honesty with clients and with other coaches. And uh, he said that it reminded him of the Irish nuns that he had in school. And that that meant you're going to get the truth, but it also might leave a bruise. So outside of us just having a <laughs> chuckle about that, what might you say about uh, that brutal honesty that's a big part of your process as you're taking some of these contextual factors in, into account? Yeah, I don't water things down too often when it comes to training advice. Now, I try, well, I actually, I succeed in not being obnoxious on the internet when it comes to saying my message the way that it's, uh, one of the way that I like to say things. Um, I don't try to step on toes or be obnoxious or be, you know, somebody that most people can't find benefit from. That's my goal when I do my thing on the internet and when I put stuff on Instagram or when I make an article or a blog article on my website or when I write an article for a publication it's always so that the most amount of people possible can benefit from this and that there's no uh, issues in that department. So uh, with that being said, it definitely pulls no punches and leaves no stones unturned when it comes to just the honest truth about what to expect. And I think that 
I would say that I'm very much the same in person. And when I'm working with a client, actually, it's funny, this week, I got two new clients in person that I've been working with. And both of them are complete beginners, like totally. The first one is a 33 year old who's never, ever stepped into the gym before they met me. And so that is a fantastic experience to work with somebody like this or have the opportunity to work with someone like this. And uh, I haven't had too many of these people before where they've never, ever, ever, ever trained before. I only had a small handful over the course of my career because it's, it's less common to actually come across when you're in the industry. So uh, with that being said, one thing that she asked me after our first session, which was just a little me, me doing an assessment and a little bit of a freestyle workout with her, um, she said, okay, so I want to do 10 workouts with you. Um, do you think that uh, I'll see results after 10 workouts? I was like, I mean, if you do the right things in 10 sessions, you're going to feel yourself getting a little bit stronger. That's for sure. Yep. And she said, how about in a year? If I continue training with you for a year, I was like, okay, well, you could look exactly and feel exactly the same as you do today after a year, or you can have tremendous results in a year. It all depends on what you put into it. And I'm a part of that process to facilitate that forward movement, but it's really going to be dependent on you. And now the other thing I said, I, said, I put it in perspective this way. I was like, here's a, take it this way. If I made you take a squat pattern and you do squats like we did today, and you did it with the empty bar on the first workout, and every week we squatted. And each week we made a progression where we took a two and a half pound plate on one side, a two and a half pound plate on the other side. We put that on and you did the three squats again, three reps. And you did that every week. We add two and a halves on either side. What do you think you'd end up squatting by the end of the year? And she is thinking about it. I don't know. I said, you'd be squatting 305. That's how much you'd be squatting. You do it once, <laughs> 52 times over the course of time, five pounds total each time, right? 305. And so that goes to show that the, the possibility for insane progression is huge. Yeah. And I guarantee you that if you squat at 305 by this time next year, you wouldn't look the same as you do right now either. <laughs> Let's just put it that way, right? So um, all of that is just to say that uh, I didn't hold back from saying that there's a great chance that you won't have any results at all working with me, but there's also a fantastic chance that you'll have fantastic results. But it's got to be a two-way street in terms of both of us doing what we're supposed to be doing being consistent, showing up, putting in the effort and so on, doing the things you're supposed to do outside of the gym as well and uh, remaining accountable. And then you're going to have leaps and bounds from where you started. So that sort of speaks to the stuff that Dan John was saying there in terms of like, you know, I don't sugarcoat things. I'm not really a cheerleader by any means, but at the same time, I definitely tell the truth and uh, I set realistic expectations for somebody. So they realize that, um, you know, it's, it's just as much on them as it is on me. And uh, that usually creates a good relationship with that client and things go well. Well, that's one of the things that makes you a great strength coach, a great trainer. And, and, um, and you know, is your ability to set the right expectations, not lead somebody uh, down a path that isn't realistic and also make them, they have to own part of the process and a big part of it. And that's just the reality of, of this, this whole thing of, and I would add to the idea that for different people, results means different things because let's just say that no weight got changed in a year, which is 
possible if you just set out to saying, you know what, I'm feeling really good with this and let's stay where I'm at. And I'm, I'm not interested in metric based changes of, of what we're doing here. I just really love how I feel after every workout. Let's sort of do a, I want to try a couple different variations of uh, squats or deadlifts, but I, I'm not really that worried about the, the weight that I'm adding to it and that kind of thing. Um, but other things can mean results. Let's say that their immune system is significantly reinforced. Let's say that their, uh, their mental health is significantly improved because of they've created an hour three to four times a week that they're now, um, challenging their body and how that does not only physically, but mentally, let's say that they just feel stronger and have more actual confidence in what they're doing. Um, you know, it could be that they do play in a rec soccer league and all of a sudden they feel like they're getting to 50, 50 balls that they weren't. And it makes it for a more enjoyable experience on the field. It could be that they're playing with their kids and they're keeping up with them suddenly. And their dog isn't pulling them while they're going for a walk. They're, they're, you know, enjoying the situation now, all those things. And yet we haven't even talked about physical durability. Everybody, nobody's driving around with a brand new car off the lot. Uh, If you're a strength coach or a trainer who thinks you're just going to be putting giving your service to blank canvases that don't have any issues and you could do anything with them all the time it's not going to be the case we started this conversation based on injury and you're going to have to be able to help people feel better in their daily activities solve nagging injury issues and all those things can happen um and and i don't begrudge anybody for what results mean to you it could mean that you definitely want to get to 305 on a bench press on a squat whatever it doesn't have to be that's not the only way that uh the, you know you burn this many calories you lost this much weight you gained this much muscle um there's so many other things that can happen from the process of exercise prescription and us as the co-pilot being able to help guide people in and around those different options of what results mean and you're so good at that Yeah, you know, thank you. And, uh, you know, what you're saying, especially when you said the words exercise prescription, particularly, um, it just reminded me that I'm a teacher as well. One of the things that I do, I work at a college here in Toronto and I work with students. And uh, because it's the name of the class, exercise prescription two is what I'm teaching this particular semester. I love it. I teach uh, the on-campus internship for uh, students as well and other semesters. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because the points that you were just raising there, they resonate with me in terms of what I tell these younger, these, these kids, what to, what to expect. They're trying to get into this industry. They're looking to create a career in personal training and fitness expertise. Now, one thing that they will often be prisoner to thinking is that, you know, the way that they feel they're 19, 20, 21, 22, that there's a lot of things that are just normal. Right. And then you, you get in front of a person who's 48, 50, 51, And they can't connect that feeling of, okay, you know, I need to warm up, not because I'm going through these motions and I can just go and push 225 if I wanted to right away cold. I remember those days, but it's not like that anymore. And things. Right. And so being able to realize if, if you're a younger coach, especially that not only building the habits of doing this regularly, but also that your reality might not be someone else's. If you have a history of, you know, injuries, if you have a surgery in your past, if you have two surgeries in your past, all these kinds of things, it shows that, you know, if you haven't gone through certain programming yourself, for example, that you're giving to a client, you might not even realize why this might be too intense for them or that this might be too hard for them. The rest intervals are wrong. Or, you know, this is a person who is bigger and taller or heavier or whatever. What kinds of things are we doing to accommodate for that sort of stuff. And 
trainers or the young students that are in my classes, uh, a common question they'll have is, okay, so you talked about uh, a loaded hinge pattern like this, and you talked about a loaded knee dominant pattern like that. Um, which one is better? And I can never, like, I'm always, <laughs> it's, it's six in one hand and half a dozen in the other. It completely depends. It completely depends. Which one is better between the two exercises depends on the individual you're training. And if you realize that it's so much based on that, it depends answer throughout the industry, throughout every situation, you're always going to have a client who has a very different response or reaction yes. to certain lift or a certain program than someone else. Some people build a ton of muscle when they're lifting really, really light for high reps. Other people build a ton of muscle when they're lifting the heaviest weights for sets of two, you know, and that all depends on somebody's complete biology and then just their own physiology and what their muscles will do for them. Now there are, and I always try to differentiate for the students between rules and principles, right? Principles are what bring the three of us together, you know, because you have your ideals in terms of what kinds of things that you would have a client do or an athlete do. I have mine. Phil's got his. Now, with that being said, if we stuck with principles, then we could all find things that we all agree on, like the basic tenets of a squat, for example. Mm. We can all agree that, you know, keeping your heels on the ground with all things equal is a smart thing to do when you're squatting. Looking for an aligned spine is a smart thing to do when you're squatting. Uh, making sure your knees are tracking correctly and right in the same line as your feet is going to be a smart thing to do when you squat down. These are things that are going to keep you clear of injuries. These are things that are going to keep the squat balanced and all sorts of stuff like that. Now, the second that we start making rules, however, is when we start painting ourselves into a corner as trainers. Mm. I went ahead and said, okay, your knees should never pass your toes. Or maybe even something that's less commonly said. For example, um, you should only squat to a 60 degree depth, not just below parallel and that's it, you know, or, or something along those lines. Then all of a sudden, there's all kinds of room for people to say, well, what about this situation? What about that situation? What about this athlete? What about that athlete? And then you end up, you know, getting yourself into trouble because that's dogmatic now, right? Yeah. And so if you start working based on rules or you start thinking that this is the way that things must go 100% of the time, then you start giving yourself problems and you start making yourself uh, tougher to, I don't know, to agree with, really. And so anyway, I'm saying this because a lot of young students, they don't realize that training and fitness and all that stuff, it has no rules. There aren't any rules in this game and there shouldn't be. And, um, you know, I'm just thinking about it from a programming perspective. A lot of students will like there is a structure that the college is definitely going to endorse, you know, hip dominant pattern in your program, a knee dominant pattern in your program, larger muscle groups before smaller muscle groups, all that sort of stuff. Just to set the stage for here's how to think about training. Here's yeah, a, blue, a blueprint, a, you know? Yeah, exactly. You know, it's this is the training wheels. And then once you take it off and you're free to ride your bike. Now with that being said, okay, well, what happens if I wanted to do a prone hamstring curl for a certain client before they did their big back squat pattern? Well, that breaks the rules of the program. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It'll be okay. There's context that needs to be applied in each and every one of these situations. And that's what's going to separate and differentiate an okay trainer from a trainer who's really great when they could really make things case sensitive, make things de dependent on uh, which situation individually that they're dealing with. And um, yeah, that's again, kind of the nexus of this. It's all about specialization for one particular body versus another particular body and so on and how 
those bodies differ and why there should be changes to our programming, exercise selection, et cetera. Are there movements that you tend to find, uh, and we talked about the squat, but are there certain movements that you tend to find to say top two or three things that these are some that you often see struggle, uh, taller individuals struggle with? Um, and then are there movements in the weight room that you say, you know what, this is something that weight, uh, taller individuals actually have a big advantage for, and let's double down on take advantage of their, um, their ability to, to take, to, to go after that. Um, so struggle wise, for sure, there's, there's a lot of them when it comes to, uh, weight training exercises for taller lifters that, you know, people will, people will have a little bit more issues with, um, mm. the squat is probably, I would say the squat and the deadlift are probably the top two, um, especially in their conventional forms, the back squat and a barbell deadlift. And so it usually begs that modifications are going to be made for the person to succeed with them without either being risk for injury and also with, uh, the opportunity to, to load things a little bit more appropriately or, or get stronger at a better rate of change. Um, so yeah. those two movements for sure. And I think that what I'm going to go for, for the third thing would actually be taller lifters and the handicap that they might have when it comes to conditioning training, specifically when you're dealing with things that involve like fixed programmed finishers or challenges that involve limiting your rest time. And so this is the exact reason why you don't see too many people who are six foot five plus who are killing it at the CrossFit games, right? Yeah. One anomaly, maybe over the, over thousands of people. And there's the reason why so many of the winners of the CrossFit games are like five, eight, five, six, five, seven, and so on, as far as the males go. So all of that is just to say that a shorter lever will equal a faster frequency work hmm. equals force times distance. When you start looking and throwing in time as a factor, you have this many cleans to do in as short a time as possible. Well, who's going to finish first? The person who has this far to travel or the person who has this far to travel with that bar? Obviously, the shorter distance person is going to win. Same way if you take a seven foot tall lifter and you take a gymnast who's five foot two and you make them and they're both equal strength, but you make them have a pull up contest. Who's going to do more pull ups in a certain amount of time? Who's going to be the first to 10? Obviously, the gymnast is going to be because they have barely have to do anything to crack out those reps. So all of that is just to say that, um, you know, when you start throwing in distance and time into the picture, especially time, and then we even throw in rest time where how long does the person need to recover in order to do this again and perform at the same level? I gave that Tabata training example a while ago. You right. know, the conditioning aspect of things can really be a hard hit and a big reality check for a lot of longer, taller lifters and so on. So uh, I would say that. Now, as far as things that create an advantage, I will admit that in the tall space, there's not too, too many things. It's not going to be a long list because right. weight training as a whole and strength training and pursuing progress and all that stuff, not that we can't do it, but it's, it's much more a shorter person's game. Let's be honest. Yeah. Now, having said that, we can take advantage of the fact that since we have such longer muscle bellies and such, such a chance for greater force generation over a long uh, range of motion, that truthfully, if we train hard enough, we can build a ton of muscle that way. Like we can mm. gains and, and, you know, even create more power and create more uh, rates of force development and so on than, than a lot of other people might be able to. Right. And so it's sort of that Randy Johnson thing you were talking about in the sense that, okay, 
If you're a long six foot 10 pitcher and you have a huge, you're already halfway to the mound and you've got your arm back here to throw, or you're a discus thrower, for example, and they can generate so much of that rotational torque before they release that discus because yeah. of how long their arms are and how big their upper body is to do that. It's a, it's a huge, huge uh, rotation, like a, like a vortex. And so right. from that perspective, they can have huge numbers. So in those regards, I think that it's going to be a benefit for a tall lifter. And a, a lot of tall and big and tall men especially dominate strongman competitions. So something mm. to be said about things that involve locomotion, um, mass moves mass as well. So we can't knock that out of the picture either. Uh, when it comes to uh, absolute strength and how large the individual might be in order to do something like that, maybe a big axle bar deadlift or whatever else you want to name that are those kinds of uh, strongman competition events, uh, the Atlas stone carries and the, you know, if you have that big long reach, you can get your hands around that thing a lot more easily. If you got big hands and you've got big traps and you're taller, longer armed individual, those farmers carries aren't going to be too much of a problem for you for a, a whole list of reasons. So there are a lot of different things actually that being taller, bigger, uh, heavier, larger, they can be an advantage to an individual. So it just depends on the discipline under the strength training umbrella that we want to focus on. And as well, you mentioned I, I earlier, love that. Yeah, the rowing machine as well, as you were hitting hitting that workout like we talked about off air. And I love the video that you had side by side because it's such a great compliment to some of the other Tall Guy Tuesdays or as you introduced, TD, like there are some limitations with certain things. But I think what for those that may, may not have seen it, and it was a little while ago on your Instagram feed, was... Hey, if if I'm side by side with this person and we're pulling the same stroke rate and we both have good form, okay, I think maybe your 500 split was like in the low 150s, which is a pretty good rate, um, versus the 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 shorter lady next to you whose form looked exactly the same. She was pulling well, finishing well, and maybe it yeah. was over two minutes. So, yeah, yeah, I love too that there are some maybe as well as the strength. There's also some conditioning um, things we look at, and as you said nothing is going to bear that physics out better than that rowing machine. So I love that. Yeah. Um, so that was actually, I forgot about that post, but yes, thanks for bringing it up. It was a one fifty two split versus like a two twenty three split or something like that for 500 meters. And yeah, um, I remember perfectly exactly why I made that post and what it was trying to, to uh, focus on. And similarly, actually the first time that I'm even bringing up my co-author here, Melody Schoenfeld, who was uh, just invaluable to the, the content that's in this book here. So and good. Like that, that whole physics chapter that was in chapter, I believe chapter four it is, um, that was all her, you know, like the, the terminology and all that deep science that she's amazing. But uh, I like the fact for a few reasons that she's my co-author. Number one, if you just look at this, you can see that I'm six foot four and she's five feet on the dot. So yep. I got a taller lifter. I got a shorter lifter here as firsthand examples. And we both lift. Second of all, you got a male and you got a female here. So is a difference is there as well in terms of, you know, is it short for men? Is it tall for men? Is it short for women, but tall for men? Like, what is the difference here in terms of that? How does it change things in terms of just what kinds of training that we're going to do? Have somebody who trains generally and you got somebody who trains a lot of arm lifting and strongman style as well. So how about that? You know, and there are a lot more things that we've sort of focused on uh, that, that made our juxtaposition, that made our teaming up such a great little, you know, uh, way to come together. It was fantastic. And so uh, I do have to say that uh, me and Melody, actually, when we did uh, the Instagram posts 
I think it was it was before that point, before we did the Roy Machine one, before I did the Roy Machine one with my client, um, we made an Instagram post and it was a similar idea. We took three movements. We took a kettlebell snatch, we took a barbell deadlift, and we took a barbell back squat. And we performed them with identical tempo, side by side, using the same amount of pause between repetitions and so on. And it was a question of first to 10, first to 10 repetitions. And in each case, it showed that Melody, being the shorter, smaller lifter with the shorter levers, she finished each rep faster. We used our body weight equivalents, or we used the same to scale weight so that that was not a factor in terms of determining. And uh, we we did each lift. And then we put them side by side in a split screen, making sure that, that both clocks started at exactly the same time. And it just spoke to the whole points that I was bringing up here about like the CrossFit stuff, about making sure the conditioning work uh, for bigger lifters versus smaller lifters, racing the clock and all that stuff work being forced times distance. It's something that definitely needs to be considered a lot more than trainers uh, give it credit for. And especially if you're dealing with a heavier lifter, whether they're conditioned or whether they're not conditioned, it's going to be something that they're very glad that they took more note of when they're making their programs, when they're telling trainers or sorry, when they're telling clients, sorry, what to do in the gym. In, incredibly, this has been so fascinating just to understand at the levels of really once you have the book in your hands and you get into it, just just we're just at the tip of the iceberg of what you can sort of understand as either a exercise prescriber or a exercise receiver and DIY uh, person trying to figure out what is the best way for you if you're not just right in that middle zone of five foot eight and, and your, your, your body is sort of in that standard zone. Um, it's just so, so effective and powerful from, uh, from being able to go through the book and, and get that out of it. We have one final question. Uh, this is the basketball strong podcast. You can answer this spiritually, emotionally, technically, whatever feels right from your mind, your gut, your heart. What does it mean to you Lee to be basketball strong? To me, I would say basketball strong means having the athletic capabilities in the palm of your hand to perform well at that sport. Mm. So if you're basketball strong, that means that you're injury free. That means that your training is going to reflect that. That means your training is only going to make you feel better when you hit the court. It means that you're paying attention to all of those little things as well that will fine tune you as an athlete. Basketball is a game that you know, it involves agility, it involves power, speed, endurance, it involves so many components of health and skill-related fitness. So when we think about the word strength, we can't just think about strong and strength being by the numbers in the gym, in the weight room, by way of absolute numbers. We have to think about it from a much more, um, you know, a holistic perspective. And uh, it's funny, I don't use question basketball, but it makes me think about track in a way, because yeah. one thing about track is when you see a 200-meter sprinter, and they, you know, they come off the corner and their hands are still way up here and their knees are still way up there as well at 150. We say, you know what? That's a strong, strong sprinter right there. He is looking strong. And so it has translation to something that doesn't necessarily have to do with strength as much as it has to do with speed, endurance, power, all kinds of other stuff, dealing with lactic acid buildup and all that stuff. So it's it's a different approach to the word, the, the definition of the term strong. And so for me, basketball strong would mean that, yeah, you have that 
um, resilience. You have the ability to take contact. You have that uh, uh, power. You have that muscular endurance that's going for you. You have all these different things that are sort of working well for you at the same time to make you that well-oiled machine that keeps you on the court and stops you from being on the sidelines. Beautiful. Phil, lock it in the vault. It is securely locked. <laughs> Lee, where can where can we get the book? Give us the name again, and um, where can we follow the the incredible work you're putting out? This is the book, Strength Training for All Body Types: The Science of Lifting and Levers. So this book is available basically everywhere on the internet and in certain bookstores as well. But let's just say we'll be on Amazon.ca, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. You can get it on Human Kinetics website themselves, us.humankinetics.com. Um, and basically, even if you just Google search the book, there'll be a million different options for you to buy this book in some place. You can find it on my Instagram uh, Coach Lee Boyce is my handle for any social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. So you can find my stuff there. You can find places to buy this book off of any of those places as well. And uh, you go on my website too, and you'll see it there too. And my website is leeboyce.com. There you're going to find an archive of all the articles I've written for all sorts of publications, television stuff, um, blog stuff, all kinds of stuff. So it's a lot of uh, good content. And as far as Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook go, especially Twitter and Instagram, I'm posting on there every single day. So you'll have something new to learn every single day. It's always fitness related stuff. I will put out a poll about who's going to win the Super Bowl. Other than that, it's all fitness stuff. One of my, one of my favorite follows. I I love it. And uh, so good. Bravo, sir. Uh, The the book is phenomenal. Um, And this was just, it just was spectacular. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, man. I was glad to be on and it was a great conversation. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show and we hope you did, Please give us a good review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to podcasts on. And so you never miss a weekly episode, be sure to subscribe and follow. You can find previous episodes on our show website. That's www.basketballstrongpodcast.com. For more basketball performance resources and nagging injury solutions, follow me on Instagram at TDAthletesEdge and follow Phil at Phil White Books. Until next week's episode, stay basketball strong.